upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. A few weeks ago, Pastor James preached on a text that really grabbed my heart and has been in my heart ever since. The text was 2 Timothy 2.8. It was a very simple verse with a very simple message. Paul writing to his young disciple Timothy in the last letter he would ever write on this earth says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. As you know, Timothy had a lot of complicated issues and struggles going on in his life at that time. His mentor and his discipler, Paul, was about to leave this world. Timothy, as a young man, would soon be entrusted with the responsibility of leading the church of God. As a young man, Timothy struggled with the typical temptations of youth. Paul had to exhort him to flee youthful lusts. Timothy was tempted to be timid, to be fearful in testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had to exhort him not to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. And it seems from the book of 1 Timothy that Timothy struggled with the fear of man. He was fearful of what older people would think of his young leadership, and so Paul had to tell him, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. He was a young man in the midst of some very complicated circumstances. He must have felt outmatched by the challenges that surrounded him. There were men who were deserting the faith. There were false teachers who were perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was hostility and persecution against the church. In the midst of these very complicated struggles, Paul gives a very simple exhortation. And he says, Timothy, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, Timothy. Look to Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Never let your gaze be diverted from Jesus Christ. Timothy, As you go through life, you're going to be tempted to want to find the answers in yourself and to look to yourself. You're going to be tempted to want to look to your circumstances and be overwhelmed with your circumstances. You're going to even be tempted to look to your own sins and your own failures and be overwhelmed by a sense of inadequacy. Timothy, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Timothy, there is power in simply looking to Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews understood that there was power in looking to Jesus. He said in Hebrews 12, verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The Apostle Peter understood that there was power in looking to Jesus. 
when he looked to Jesus, he was unable to get out of the boat and to actually walk on water toward Jesus. But when his eyes were diverted to the wind and the waves, he began to falter and he began to sink. We all understand that there's power in looking to Jesus. I've been a Christian now for 17 years. And through that time, I've learned that my sins are very great. I've learned that there is sin not only in my sin, but sin in my righteousness. I've learned that I live in a world that is utterly inhospitable to my faith. I've learned that suffering is real. I've learned that there are problems that I encounter and that Christians encounter that don't seem to have any answers. But I've also learned that if I keep my eyes on Jesus, He will produce His fruit in me. I've learned that if I keep my eyes on Jesus, He will be faithful to lead and to guide me. If I keep my eyes on Jesus, He will restore my heart and fill me with joy. If I keep my eyes on Jesus, He will use me by His grace and do His good work on me. You see, we've learned what Paul was telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8. There is power in simply looking to Jesus Christ. And maybe some of you this morning, you've come this morning, your heart is in need of encouragement. Maybe you've come this morning and your heart is in need of strength. Maybe you've come and you've been beaten and battered with temptation all week and your heart is in need of sanctification? If so, this morning we simply want to look to Jesus Christ to remember Him and to receive the grace that comes from looking to our Savior. Matthew 12, verses 14 to 21 presents to us four perspectives on who Jesus is so that our eyes may be focused on Jesus Christ. First, we will see Jesus, divine healer. Second, we will see Jesus, beloved son. Third, we will see Jesus, tender shepherd. And fourth, we will see Jesus, triumphant king. Who is Jesus Christ? He is healer, son of God, shepherd, and king. What is he like? He is divine, beloved by the Father, tender, and he is triumphant. Let's look at these four perspectives together. First of all, Matthew shows us in this passage, Jesus, divine healer. Jesus, divine healer. Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. Some of the most precious sections of the Gospels are the parts that don't tell us anything to do. There are no commands to obey. There are no prohibitions to be warned of. There are no responsibilities to be fulfilled. They are just sections of the Gospels which tell us this is what Jesus did. And it's as if the gospel writers are asking us to take a pause from our life. To stop hurrying and worrying. 
to stop frantically scattering around and to just pause and to look at who Jesus is. And this is one of those passages. It tells us of the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And there are times when I've wished that I could go back in a time machine. If I could just go back for 15 minutes and just see these scenes firsthand for myself. How beautiful would it be? The massive healing ministry of Jesus Christ in which multitudes came to Him and He in His compassionate and merciful heart reached out in love and He healed them. How beautiful this must have been. How awesome this must have been. To see lame people walking, deaf people hearing, blind people seeing, demon-possessed people clothed and in their right mind. And it wasn't just isolated events. It wasn't just one miracle here and one miracle there. It was massive crowds coming to Him, surrounding Him with every kind of affliction and every kind of disease. And Jesus Christ in the middle of this humanity of suffering this humanity which was afflicted, reaching out in mercy and tenderness and love and healing them all. What I would give to see this with my own eyes. How beautiful it must have been. What would have been the look on these people's faces for the very first time after suffering with illness all their life to be healed in an instant. And when Christ healed, He didn't just heal from a distance, but He healed personally. When the leper came to Him, filled with leprosy, unclean, dirty, Jesus didn't just say, I heal you, but stay away. But He reached out with His compassionate and merciful hand, and He touched Him. The man probably hadn't been touched for years or even decades. He touched him and he healed him. You see, this this healing ministry of Jesus Christ reveals the compassion of God. It reveals the mercy of God. It reveals the tenderness of God. It reveals the pity of God. Hebrews 1 says, In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And see Him surrounded by the multitudes of hurting people. And see Him not turning them away but healing their afflictions. Mark 3, verse 7 gives an expanded account of what we see in our passage. It says there that Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. 
For a moment, consider this scene from the perspective of Christ's humanity. Jesus was 100% God, but He was also 100% man. Consider how exhausting and how demanding, how tiring it must have been for Jesus Christ to be surrounded by these crowds, to be pressed upon by this crowd of sick people. People who didn't come to give, but to get. People who were clamoring for attention, who were clamoring for help. And the people, Mark says, were so insistent in their need for help that they would have literally crushed out his physical life if he hadn't put a boat out to shore. We've heard of sporting events, soccer events, where the crowds are so frenzied they will literally crush a person's life or even great concerts in which the crowd will be so frenzied that a person will actually die. And these crowds were so passionate about reaching Jesus that they would have literally snuffed out his physical life. And this happened not just once or twice, but throughout his ministry. How exhausting it must have been for him. How it must have sapped his physical energy. As I get older, my energy level is decreasing. And I get tired just even going to Disneyland on a crowded day. I mean, just the crowds and the heat and the noise and people jostling upon you. What would it have been like for Jesus to be pressed upon by the crowds Day after day. And yet, how did he respond to these needs? Did he bark at them in impatience? Did he lose his temper or lose his cool? Did he tell them to get in line? Did he yell at them and ration his care to the most needy? Not once do we find that he ever spoke an irritable word. Not once do we find that he had a limit to his compassion and said, no more. But our text, verse 15, says simply, he healed them all. He healed them all. Everyone who came was blessed. And everyone who asked received. For the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. How characteristic it was of Jesus to minister in this way. How like Jesus it was to give his life in this way. How like Christ it was to pour out his life to the suffering and to the needy. And the truth is that he ministers to us with a similar heart with a heart of mercy, love, compassion, and tireless self-giving. I'm so glad that when I come to Jesus day after day with my hurts, my needs, my struggles, my temptations, He doesn't say, Dan, I've heard this how many times? I mean, enough. Can't you just deal with it for once on yourself? I'm so glad that He is a divine healer and that He welcomes all to come.
and to receive grace and mercy from his hand. The first perspective Matthew shows us is Jesus, divine healer. Let's move to a second perspective. He shows us Jesus, beloved son. Jesus, beloved son, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The sheen shifts in verse 17 from the earthly view of Jesus to the heavenly view of Jesus. From how men perceive Jesus to be to how the heavenly Father perceives Jesus to be. Matthew quotes Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4 and brings out the messianic implications of this prophecy and the simple truth he highlights in this passage is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, He is beloved by the Father who is in heaven. The Father loves Jesus. The Father delights in Jesus. The Father finds great joy in Jesus. And the Father says of Jesus Christ, Behold, this is my beloved Son. My soul is well pleased. It's an expression that was echoed at the time of Jesus' baptism. Behold, this is my beloved Son. It was echoed in the time of Jesus' transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He is not just divine healer, but He is the Beloved Son. Take a journey with me this morning back to a time before the world was created. Take a journey to a time before anything actually besides God existed. Take a journey back to a time before Genesis 1.1, before there was any man, before there was any sun, before there was any earth. And consider that for eternity past, the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, three distinct persons, yet not three gods, but one God, existed in perfect fellowship, perfect harmony, perfect relationship. And as a result, they existed in perfect joy. Because not only did the Father see the full beauty and glory of the Son in eternity past, but the Father had an infinite capacity to enjoy the beauty of the Son in their perfect relationship. Have you ever thought about the fact that we see so little of the beauty of Jesus? Our finite hearts have a limited capacity to enjoy Jesus Christ. And yet that little bit that we see fills our hearts with so much joy that we want to sing and we want to shout. And it's a joy that nothing in this world can touch. We've just tasted a little bit of who Jesus is. And yet that alone is enough to fill our hearts with joy. Consider the Father's perspective of Jesus. The Father sees Jesus in all His beauty, all His glory. All is perfection, but the Father has a limitless capacity to enjoy the person of who Jesus is. 
And so it's no wonder that the Father says, I am well pleased with my Son. My heart is filled with delight when I consider my Son. I am a happy God. The Bible calls Him the blessed God. I'm happy. Why? Because I have a relationship with the Son. The Father delighting in the Son, verse 18, says that He is my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. But in that loving relationship, the Father commissions the Son to a mission here on earth in which He says that He is my servant whom I have chosen. The Father plans the plan of redemption. He plans the walk and the road to the cross in which the Son will give His life as a ransom for many. And the Son comes to earth in fulfillment of the Father's will and dies in our place for our sin, satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. All of this is an expression of the love relationship that existed in eternity past between the Father and Son. And so the Father sends the Son to earth to fulfill the plan of redemption. Verse 18 he says, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So not only does the Father plan redemption, the Son accomplish redemption, but the Spirit empowers redemption. And now because of what Christ has done, it is the Father who now delights in us. Because he sees in us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Richard Sibbs, in his classic work, The Bruce Reed, writes this, See here for our comfort a sweet agreement of all three persons. The Father gives a commission to Christ. The Spirit furnishes and sanctifies to it. And Christ Himself executes the office of a mediator. Our redemption is founded upon the joint agreement of all three persons of the Trinity. And brothers and sisters, what security should that bring to our hearts? To know that it was the Father who was offended by our sins and our iniquities, and yet it was the Father who initiated and planned the scope of redemption. What comfort it should bring to our hearts to know that we have not been saved through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the precious blood of Jesus Christ in whom the Father is well pleased that the Father cannot reject us without also rejecting His Son and He will never reject His Son. For His Son is the person whom He delights in. And what comfort it should bring to our hearts to know that not only did the Father plan redemption and the Son accomplish redemption, but the Spirit empowered redemption and that the Spirit came into our hearts and testified inwardly to the person of who Jesus is so that our hearts were raised from death into life and that it is now the Spirit who lives in us and empowers us and shows us the person of who Jesus is. What security it should bring to our hearts to know that though we are weak and though we are frail, 
And though we are sinful, it is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who, together in the unity of the who they are, has accomplished and secured redemption of sinners. And because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to our account by grace alone, through faith alone, the Father now looks at us and can say, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Do you feel that when you live your Christian life? Do you feel the Father's delight over you because of the work Christ has accomplished for you? Or are you looking to yourself for your standing before God? Are you looking to your works, your deeds, your righteousness, and so you feel insecure, you feel guilty, you feel the Father is disappointed in you because the basis for your relationship with Him is still yourself. Oh, Brothers and sisters, Matthew would say, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Feel the delight of the Father over you because of what the Son has accomplished for you. The third thing we see in this passage, Jesus is divine healer, He is beloved Son, and thirdly, He is tender shepherd. He is a tender shepherd. Verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Matthew begins with a scene of Jesus in the midst of the multitude. He then transports us into heaven to see the Father's perspective of Jesus, and now he brings us right back down to earth. And he shows us how Jesus relates to weak and needy sinners. The main idea in verse 19 is simply this. Jesus Christ is a God of great compassion. He's a God of mercy. Don't mistake this for weakness. No, Jesus Christ is infinitely strong. But he channels that strength into a tender, merciful ministry to the weakest and the neediest of society. See, this is what the religious leaders of Israel never understood. They, their concern was for the educated and the elite. Their concern was for the movers and shakers of society. They were only concerned for the high and the mighty. They had no time for the weak. In contrast to them, Jesus was humble. He didn't deal harshly with those who were struggling, but he ministered to them. He was patient with them. Verse 19 says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The people of Israel expected a political Messiah. They expected someone to come and deliver them from the bondage from Rome. They expected a loud charismatic leader, one who would shout and command attention and bring everyone under his authority and break Rome's rule from Israel. And in contrast, Matthew says, no, Jesus is a suffering servant. He will not be the kind of Messiah that cries aloud. You won't hear his voice in the streets. Rather, where will you find him? 
you will find him in the midst of the weak, of the afflicted. Isaiah 53.3 tells us he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is his heart. Matthew says, quoting Isaiah, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Both pictures here, a bruised reed and a smoldering wick, are pictures of weakness. They're pictures of people who are struggling. They're people who have been beaten up and battered. They're they're people who don't have their lives together, but they're barely hanging on. Reeds were common in Jesus' day. They were a penny apiece. Shepherds would take them and cut them and make them into a simple musical instrument and blow music through them. But if they got a little bit bruised, they would just throw them away and get another reed. I mean, there's plenty of reeds around. Why take the time to mend that reed? It's, in our day, it would be like a paper plate. I mean, they're like a penny apiece. Who of us, if a paper plate gets oiled and stained, takes the time to wash it and to cleanse it and to restore its whiteness? No, we say, I have a hundred paper plates in my cupboard. They're meant to be disposable. This bruised reed is a picture of a weak and struggling Christian. One that's been hurt deeply. One who maybe used to make beautiful music for God, but the music's been muted because they've experienced life. They've experienced suffering. And when you find them on Sundays, you won't find them singing with joy to God. You will find them barely making it to church, barely hanging on. Matthew says, you know what Jesus does with that bruised reed? He doesn't break it off and throw it away. Oh, i got plenty more. He takes the time to tenderly and mercifully nurse that reed back to health until it can blow beautiful music once more. The same he does for smoldering wick, another picture of weakness. A lamp in a house would have a wick, and when it burned bright and clean, it would give light to all the house and be a blessing for all to see. But when that wick ran out of fuel, it would come to a point where it was neither all alive or all dead. It would smolder. And the smoldering would give off a smoke that would irritate people in the house. And so not only was it not useful, it was harmful and irritating to others. Most people would look at that wick and just snuff it out. Get a new one. But not Christ. Matthew says, a smoldering wick he will not quench. That smoldering wick is a picture of a believer whose faith used to burn bright and clean and clear and used to be a blessing to others. But because of what life has thrown at him, His faith is weak. He's barely hanging on. 
And how does Jesus look to that believer? He says, you know what? My heart, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to be faithful to you. Your security doesn't depend upon your faithfulness to me. Your security depends upon my faithfulness to you. And I've died for you. And I will be faithful. And I will nurse you back to health until your flame burns bright and clean. And you will be a blessing again to others. Richard Sibbs writes once again, Christ's sheep are weak sheep and lacking in something or another. He therefore applies himself to the necessities of every sheep. He seeks that which was lost and brings again that which was driven out of the way and binds up that which was broken and strengthens the weak. His tenderest care is over the weakest. The lambs he carries in his bosom. Let all know that none are fitter for comfort than those that think themselves furthest off. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. I'm so thankful that Christ doesn't break off bruised reeds or quench smoldering wicks. Because as many of you know, I was a bruised reed and a smoldering wick myself. Many of you know that before I came to this church approximately three years ago, I was struggling with depression and despair. I was discouraged to the point where I wanted to quit pastoral ministry and never serve Christ in this way again. My life and my heart have been bruised by different trials and circumstances. And I think if there's any usefulness in my life today, if there's any song of joy in my heart, if there's any way that I could be of service to anyone else, it is only because of this. Jesus Christ, He is a tender shepherd. He will not give up on the weakest Christian. He will hold that Christian. And through His faithfulness, He will perform His work. And He will restore. This is the beauty of who our Savior is. He's a divine healer. He's a beloved son. He's a tender shepherd. But the fourth perspective is something we need to see. He is also a triumphant king. He is a triumphant king. Make no mistake about it, The meekness of Jesus Christ is not the weakness of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, His tenderness is not cowardice. There is coming a day when Jesus Christ will triumph. The first coming of Jesus Christ, we saw Him nailed to a cross where He fulfilled His role as a suffering servant. But the second coming of Jesus Christ is coming soon. And here we will see Him as a triumphant King. He will rule and He will reign. And every knee shall bow to His authority. Verse 20 says, A bruised reed He will not break. A smoldering wick He will not quench until, and mark this down carefully, until He brings 
justice to victory. And in His name, the Gentiles will hope. Jonathan Edwards, in his work, The Excellency of Jesus Christ, has written this, There do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension. Christ, as He is God, is infinitely great and high above all, and yet Jesus is one of infinite condescension. What a meaning meeting of infinite highness and low condescension do we see in the person of Jesus Christ. As a shepherd, we see His condescension. As Matthew concludes this passage, he shows us His infinite highness. He is a king. He will bring justice to victory. And that one little phrase, bringing justice to victory, encompasses all of Christ's earthly mission here on earth. For what was the mission of Jesus Christ on this earth? It was to satisfy the justice of God at the cross on behalf of guilty sinners so that God can now treat guilty sinners with love and grace and compassion and mercy and not be unjust, but be just because He has already punished all of our sins at the cross. This was the mission of Jesus Christ. It was to satisfy God's justice. And so when Jesus Christ came, He fulfilled that work on the cross when He died in our place for our sins. And now, as that message goes forward and is proclaimed and transforms lives unto God's glory, the church is being built up. It is being built up in the Gentile world. And all the world, every tongue and tribe and nation shall hear of this glorious message. And the work will not stop until it is brought to victory. And so Matthew says, you see this tender shepherd? You see this divine healer? You see this humble Savior who reaches out to lepers, who heals paralytics, who touches blind men, who has time for the demon afflicted, you see this tender shepherd who nurses broods, reeds, and spends time with smoldering wicks. He is a triumphant king. One day, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day he will return And Isaiah 32, verse 16 says, Justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness will abide in the fruitful field. The effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. He will bring justice to victory. And then Matthew says, in his name, the Gentiles. Well, hope. You say, who's that? That's you and me. That's the non-Jews. That's those outside of the land of Israel. We are those who hope in Jesus Christ. We are those who believe in Jesus Christ. We are those who look to Jesus Christ. We are those who remember Jesus Christ. Our trust is not in a program. Our trust is not in a personality. Our trust is not in an institution. 
Our trust is not in an organization. Our trust, our hope, our confidence, our joy is in a person. And as we look to Him, we receive the grace and mercy that is in Christ Jesus. One of the great conversion stories of church history is the testimony of C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon, as you know, was a famed preacher. He preached to approximately 10 million people in his lifetime. And yet his conversion was in pretty ordinary circumstances. Spurgeon attended a small chapel in which there was only about 15 people. The minister who usually preached there was diverted by a snowstorm, and so a poor, ordinary tailor got up to preach in his place. The man, Spurgeon says, was very stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text, for he had little else to say, and the text was Isaiah 45, verse 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon said he couldn't even pronounce the words rightly. But the simple message preached that day would change Spurgeon's life. The tailor said, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, look to Christ. The text says, look unto me, look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on a cross. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me, Spurgeon looked. And his life and church history would never be the same. There's power in a simple look. May God bless each of you richly as you look this morning to Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Son. We thank You that though Your eternity past, You had an infinite delight and joy in who Your Son was. That in Your wisdom, You sent Him to live on this earth. To die as a sacrifice for our sins. You were pleased to crush him. To pour all the holy wrath that we deserved. To pour it instead on Christ. He took the death that we deserve to die. He took the curse that we deserve to have. We thank you, Father, that your wrath is satisfied. You will not be so unjust to punish Jesus for our sins and then punish us twice again for sins that have already been atoned for. No, you will delight in us. You will rejoice over us. You will love us and you will be faithful to us. You will bring us home to be with yourself for all of eternity. Pray that every heart this morning would look to Jesus Christ and receive grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.